Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Sat on a tree Down a down Hey down a down They were as black As they might be With a down One of them Said to his mate Where shall we Our breakfast take With a down Dairy 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 Down down Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the Three Ravens podcast. We're on a break at the moment, researching and writing our third series, which will launch in December. To fill the gap, this is one of three little compilation episodes containing three stories from across our first and second series. I say our stories, but these are all Eleanor stories. Don't know what you think, but maybe I should get to write a mermaid story at some point. That sounds fair to you. Get your fishy mitts off the merfolk, Conlon. Anyway, we've entitled this episode Three Mermaids because it contains three of our mermaid tales, including our Cornwall story, The Mermaid of Zena, our Suffolk story, The Wild Man of Orford, and our Cheshire story, The Mermaid of Rosthern Mere. If you're interested in supporting the podcast and would like to access all of our episodes ad-free, as well as loads of additional content like monthly exclusive episodes, episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, our newsletters, stories as text versions, and more, then sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. And for our archive of all past episodes and expanded information for each episode, as well as our shop full of Three Ravens merch, please visit our website at threeravenspodcast.com. Otherwise, I'll hand things over to Eleanor, who will start spinning her yarns right after this. This tale was made where the sea meets the sky at the edge of the world. It's as old as a barnacled anchor and as new as the sunrise glinting on a sinuous, scaly tail. On a green and rain-drenched isle, there lived a woman named Asinora. She was noble and fair, but she wandered on her way through life with no lover to call her own. That was because Asinora had a secret. She was a woman, but she was not only a woman. Whenever she was completely submerged in water, she underwent a change. Her long, pale legs grew close together as though they were caught in a fishing net, and a fine covering of scales, glittering like new shillings, crept over them until she had a long, flexible tail, just like a sea snake's. Asinora did not mind her tail, for it only troubled her when she bathed, but she was quick and observant enough to realise that others might mind it a great deal. 
In those days, folk were quick to condemn faces and limbs which didn't look like their own, and swift to kindle bonfires when confronted by the strange. It was for this reason that she kept to herself, living quietly in a secluded tower and shunning the company of men. But one day, as Asinura was walking by the banks of the river and enjoying the sound of the birds in the blossom trees and the sight of the darting minnows in the shallows, everything changed. A knight came riding towards her, following the bends of the river. At first, all Asinura could see was a tiny dot on the horizon, but soon, far too soon, the dot resolved itself into a coal-black warhorse decked in white and gold, and a knight on its back, likewise brilliantly apparelled. It was too late for Asinura to run back to her tower and out of his sight. The knight rode right up to her and wished her good morning. She hoped that would be the end of it, but he seemed in no hurry at all, and was soon sliding from his horse's back and giving it a drink from the river, and passing the time of day in a very gentlemanly fashion. Now this knight, whose name was Revelin, was very much struck by Asinora's charms, not least the expression of slight panic in her eyes and the way she kept glancing over her shoulder as if there was somewhere she would rather be. Ordinarily, he was the sort of knight who would waste no time in urging a pretty woman to lie down in the flower-strewn field with him, but he could see that it would be no use. She seemed so shy and so timid that he knew he would have to find another way. So Revelyn dawdled along with Asinora, telling her all manner of tales of his grand adventures and his great friendship with the young king. As she had never been anywhere or talked to anybody, the pictures he painted in her imagination were wonderful indeed. And while he talked, she stole sidelong glances at him from underneath her eyelashes, and she liked what she saw. Why prolong my story? By the end of the walk, Asinora and Revelyn were promised to each other, and by the end of the week, they were married. The marriage feast was fine, and the guests danced for days. Revelyn carried Asinora away to his castle by the sea, and showered her with rubies red as roses, pearls big as plums, and crystal caskets of glittering gold. She promised to love him truly and faithfully, as long as he promised to leave her quite alone every Saturday so she could take a bath. This seemed an easy enough thing to promise, so Revelyn happily agreed. Why is it that the one thing we know we must never do is the thing which seems the most alluring? Now, I don't mean to say that Revelyn broke his vow directly, no, far from it. They were delighted with one another and many moons had waxed and waned in their marriage before anything went wrong. But while Revelyn enjoyed Asinora's company and had no complaints about her, he became restless and irritable for thinking of the one thing he had promised not to do. Every Saturday, when his wife sent for buckets of steaming water and pounds of sweet-smelling soap and unbound her hair from its twisted crown of braids, he looked at the closed door to her chamber, and he wondered. Every Saturday, he made himself walk away and ride his warhorse in the forests or fly his hawk to the windy skies. Until one Saturday, when his own curiosity lit him up with too bright a flame to fight, and he flung back the doors to Asinora's chamber to see her in the bath. From the waist up, it was his own beloved wife, every inch known to him, with her wet hair all loose and spilling over the rim of the bath. But from the waist down, the bath was filled with a monstrous tail, big as a barrel of herring and tremendously long. Asinora shrieked and called out after her husband, but it was too late. Revelyn rushed from the room, and she could hear him raging through the castle, calling to his men and raising the hue and cry. Asinora was terrified. He no longer sounded like the man she loved, but had the voice of a stranger. She did not pause to think. In her fear, she slithered from the bath and straight out of the window of the castle turret and into the raging seas below. A fierce current caught her at once, and with a few thrashes of her powerful tail, she was soon borne away from the land. 
and she wept because she knew that Revelyn had lost a good and faithful wife despite the secret she had kept from him. And she wept because she knew he would never be able to love her as she was, half woman and half fish. And she wept for the life she had known on the green and rain-drenched island, now lost to her forever, and for the love in her own heart which had been for the whole of her husband, even though his had never been for the whole of her. She swam a long while below the waves, longing for the ocean's dark and infinite embrace to soothe the pain she felt. Now a long way from those shores, across that tempest-tossed sea, was the Cornish headland, and on that headland near Porthsena Cove stood Matty Trewella gazing out to sea. Thrift and sea campion grew in tangles round his feet, and the wind blew his hair into curly clouds. He looked out as far as his eyes would allow, but he did not see the ridged back of Morgor the serpent, and he did not hear the bells of the lost city of Leoness, drowned in a single night or so, they say. Instead, he saw the sunrise and the haze over the waves. Some days the sea shone like a mirror, but that day it was shrouded in mist. Matty was pleased because he knew the old saying, mist from the hill brings water for the mill. Mist from the sea brings fine weather for me. He would have stood watching all day, but he wanted to get to the church. It was a Saturday, not a Sunday, but Matty Trewella had a fine, strong voice, and he sometimes liked to go into the church to practice his singing when nobody else was there. The church in Zena was simple and fresh and flooded with light from its high windows. Matty stood in the nave and faced towards the altar, and his voice rose up like a fluttering lark. As he sang his way through his favourite hymns, the church door slid softly open. Up the aisle came a woman, spattering droplets onto the stone floor as she went. Her hair was long and wild, every shade of gold and brown, and some of it deeper, softer, coloured like the inside of a wave. The dress was made of plaited seaweed which had wound itself around her body as she swam. It was Athenora, the lady from the sea. Matty neither heard her nor paused in his singing, for he was moved by the music and carried somewhere far away from his own self on the wings of a song. And the bright sun which the sea mist had foretold shone through the leaded panes of glass and onto Matty's cheek, making it glow warm. The softest breath of a sound came from Asinora's lips as she looked at him. No, she did more than look. She beheld him, just exactly as he truly was. Now, Matty finished his hymn, and although he was in the church, it was not Sunday, so he thought nothing of striking up with another song, a merry sailor's ballad, in the old language of the land. When he reached the chorus, he heard another voice joining in with him. Asanora was singing too, and her voice was high and pure at the top, and rough and velvety at the bottom. And Matty stopped singing in shock, and then he turned and he saw her, and he beheld her too. Her arms were wet, and her tangled locks of hair, and at the hem of her seaweed dress he could see a pale white foot with greenish veins and fish scales vanishing away up her long smooth leg. But she was only a mermaid in water, but she'd been in the ocean such a long time that it took a while for all the effects to vanish. She never minded, for this was her true self, half woman and half fish. And something about this young man told her that it would be all right to show herself to him. Well, they sang together, and their voices jumped up and danced together in the space between Asanora's sea-green eyes and Matty's bright brown ones. And soon enough, they were leaving the church together, arm in arm, just as though they'd been married, though no words of wedlock had ever passed their lips. But Matty Truella's old proverb was right. The sea mist had brought him fine weather, and a fine woman too. And that was the last anybody ever saw of Matty and Zena. His old mother would have gone mad with wondering about him if she hadn't had other grown-up children to care for her. 
She was sleeping in the graveyard before anybody brought back any news of her missing son. Now, there was a sea captain sailing his ship back from far-flung shores. His hold was full of barrels of rum and chests of tea, and he was eager to put into port and recover his land legs. But there was some trouble about getting into the harbour, so he anchored the ship a little way out to the sea to wait. All at once, he heard a woman's voice calling to him. He looked about for her, and eventually he saw her in the waves, her pale face bobbing against the dark water. The captain's first thought was that she was in danger, but then he saw the shape of her long tail beneath the surface and realised she was a mermaid. Haul up your anchor, she called to him. It's resting on my door and I can't get home to Matty and the children. Well, the captain hauled anchor fast enough, for he was wary of upsetting a mermaid, having some misgivings about their powers over sea and storm. Like Quicksilver, the mermaid dived back down to the seabed and vanished from his sight. But when he was drinking in the tinner's arms that evening, having finally put into port, he told the company what he'd seen, and those of the village folk who had the longest memories all agreed that it must have been the mermaid who'd stolen away Matty Truella all those years ago. Neither Matty or the mermaid was ever seen or heard of again. Stories are as changeable as the colour of the sea, so nobody could quite agree if she was really a mermaid, or a saint, or a beautiful woman, but they carved her image on a bench in the church, the very one on which she sat to sing. You can still see it today if you visit. And if you stand on the headland at Porthsenna Cove, sunrise on a spring morning, you might just hear the lovers' voices on the edge of the breeze. And so my tale is told, and now it belongs to you. When the sea's dreaming before a storm, and the sound of it rolling over the shingle rises and falls like the gentle beating of a heart, and the cormorants skim under the surface of the water and burst free, shaking shining drops from their oil-dark feathers. And it's so bright and clear out there, you can almost hear the waves whispering their secrets to the sky. Then I remember that strange time. Our stories here are fashioned by the sea, just as our coast is beaten and battered into new shapes. It's juts and hollows, the bony elbows on the arms of England. This is a tale from the deepest depths of the sea, written between the lines of its strange, wild song. Monks and men try to capture it, the scratch and stab of their goose-feather pens determining history. But they weren't there, that stormy spring when the marvellous catch was made. I was. I saw it all. I was young then, young and new with the shine still on me, but I remember it clear as the bells ringing under the sea to warm of a storm. I saw it all. This is how it started, with a sea salt taste on the tip of the tongue and a boat bumping and bouncing down the beach, the day full of possibility with dreams of nets groaning full of snappers and sturgeon and sticklebacks and salmon. Wasn't my story then. Then it belonged to a clout-headed pair of fishermen, Rafe and Who. Every single day, Rafe and Who sat in their boat and waited for Bounty to swim into their nets. Every single day. But that day, something was different. A dark shadow wriggled and rippled under the boat, bigger than an eel, bigger than an elephant fish. Rafe and Who saw what looked like a tail, but then they saw arms, hands and fingers. It's a man down there, cried Rafe. We best save him or he'll be fair to drown. Sweating and straining, they heaved and hauled, hand over hand, muscles moaning and backs berating. The net protested and clung to the water, but at last it came free and over the bows, thumping and slithering into the boat. 
Rafe and Who pulled at the net, trying to see if the drowning man lived, but they saw no man inside. No man, but a huge, glossy mass, flopping and quivering and taking a great, gulping breath. Well, that's no man, said Who. It's a monster! It was market day in Orford Town when they brought their monster up to show us. A stiff sea breeze urged the sharp smell of fresh catch into my nostrils as gossip and news flew about like seagulls. Money slipped from purses quick as salmon from nervous hands as the rows of stalls heaved and seethed like the sea herself. Fish was our life and our living. The sea was always our friend, but we worked it hard back then. There was nothing so sweet to see as a full net full of wriggling, slithering beauties. Silver and bronze and green, better than any hoard of treasure. And there was no fishing without me, for I made the nets. Twisted hemp and pine tar as I net and loop and back and forth. From my corner of the market, I could see everything when they brought him up. There was a huge crowd around the net, gawping and poking at something huddled in one of my nets. I heard mutters of monster and demon, fish or fowl, but when I pushed through to look for myself, I saw none of those things. Oh, he was scaly and glistening slick as a snipe eel and tailed like a fish. But when I looked into the great dark pools of his eyes... I knew he was a man. Some said we ought to put him back in the sea where he came from, and I was with him, but Rafe and Who were for taking him up to the castle to show him to Lord Bartholomew. They were prinking and proud of themselves, you see, wanting to show off what they hauled up. So they lifted the net on their shoulders and up we all went after them to see what our betters made of it. In those days... Bartholomew de Granville was Orford's protector. High in his smart new castle, he looked down on us all with his knife-grey stare and his two clean hands. He was a, a devil-digger, a church-goer, mean and cold. Being such close friends with God, he didn't need to be friends with anyone else. When we brought the wild man into the castle... The Lord Bartholomew's sharp gaze sliced into all of us before it came to rest on the man in the net. The jewelled clasp of his prayer book clicked shut as he stood and commanded Rafe and Who to untangle the net. Twisted fibres of the net came loose from the wild man's body and for the first time I saw him, I really saw him. Not a fish, no... Something other, something all its own. I saw green skin, glittering scales all barnacled over like the treasure of a long-forgotten wreck. His hair was coarse, strong tendrils waving weed-like round the rock pools and shallows of his face. And that long, sinuous tail flicking up and over. The sound it made, beating against the floor... A pumping heart, a quivering tattoo of fear. We asked the Lord Bartholomew if he was a man or a fish, but the Lord said he was a devil. I said no, because the wild man was frightened, but Lord Bartholomew said it was a trick. Devils play tricks, he said in his cold, distant voice. Lies are the only language their tongues know. This creature's unnatural tail and hideous skin proclaim it for what it is, a flawed and jagged fragment of God's image. He threw us all out then, and I only found out what happened when I sneaked back to the castle after dark and spoke to my friend Jack, who washed the pots there. Jack said that Lord Bartholomew and his guards had taken the wild man down to the dungeons below the castle. They'd questioned him for hours, Jack told me, asking him if he was spying for the French, if he was a fish pretending to be a man, 
if it was an evil spirit possessing the body of a drowned sailor and all manner of nonsense. When he couldn't answer or understand them, they thought he must be a fish. But Lord Bartholomew reached out and pinched the wild man till he called out in pain, and then he said that the fish couldn't feel pain, so the creature from the deep must be a man. Jack said it had gone on all day after that, with the Lord Bartholomew insisting that a man must acknowledge and recognise Christ our Saviour. Of course, the wild man hadn't responded, so the Lord had called to his guards to strike his limbs and sprinkle hot oil. They carried on and on, pain from every point of the compass, changing from burning to pinching to hitting to tearing. The wild man made sounds at last, hollow, cavernous notes of pain. But he spoke no words, and he didn't understand the cross, the bread and the wine, the holy book. Long after night had fallen, they left him. But he wasn't what he was anymore. They tried to make him different, like them. Their blades had ripped and his scales had fallen like snowflakes on the stone floor. They hadn't killed him, but they'd taken his life from him just the same, breaking where they thought they mended. The last thing Lord Bartholomew did, Jack told me, was to bring the cross towards the wild man. And when he hung his head, Bartholomew believed that he had won. Why's he hate him so much? Jack asked me. I didn't know then, but I know now. Lord Bartholomew hated the wild man because he didn't understand him, and he couldn't control him, and he hid his fear in a cloak sewn from prayer and authority. It was late then, and most in the castle were in their beds, so we sneaked down into the underbelly of the castle where the dungeons were. There were no guards on duty and it was a lonely, desperate place, thick with the smell of pain, a foul fog you could almost taste in the air. The wild man was huddled in a corner, his webbed fingers scrabbling for purchase on the walls, blood thickened on the floor and the cracks between the stones. His tail was a ruin. Jack had a bucket of fish he'd brought and we offered it to the wild man. He was suspicious at first, but hunger soon won. To this day, I've never seen anyone eat like that. He took hold of the fish and brought it to his mouth, squeezing it hard. Blood and juices poured down his chin and he drank it like it was the best thing he'd ever tasted. Then he guzzled down the rest, cracking and crunching the bones until there was nothing left. He let us help him then, unfolding himself and showing his tail to us. I had my tools with me and it was easier than weaving a net after all. With each stitch, I drew the ripped flesh together and brought him back to himself. And as I stitched, we talked to him, Jack and I, telling him... He's whole, that he was before and he will be after, that Lord Bartholomew can't make him something he isn't. We were about to leave Jack and I, but the wild man caught hold of my arm. He held out his hand to me and his green palm uncurled. Nestled in its hollow, we saw a marvellous shell, iridescent and dazzling. It seemed to draw all the light to it drag it into itself so it was the only bright thing I took it in my hand and Jack put his hand on it too and we suddenly heard a swirling rush of water as though we were plummeting into the deepest depths of the sea I took it in my hand and Jack put his hand on it too and we suddenly heard a swirling rush of water as though we were plummeting into the deepest depths of the sea the water grew blue and still, till it was like being inside a jewel. We could hear music, but it sounded as if it were coming from a long way away through water. The light from the shell expanded and stretched until it was everywhere. It played across the flickering, twinkling skin of the fish. Yes, fish! 
They were with her, so so it seemed, nudging in her hands and feet, playing in our hair and tickling our noses with bubbles. The murmur and swell of the ocean seemed louder and louder, drowning out voices and gossip and rules until the sea was everything. Well, after that, Jack and I were determined to get the wild man back to his home, though we didn't know how we would do it, and we didn't get a chance until much later. The summer had come right in, and we were readying ourselves in Orford to celebrate the feast of the Star of the Sea. We'd scrub behind our ears, soak the scent of sea and scallop from our hands, and we were ready for a party. Lord Bartholomew was pious and everything, but he couldn't resist the chance to show off. So he ordered that the wild man be brought out of the castle dungeons and down to the harbour so people could look at him. But he didn't want him just swimming away, so he called for some nets to stretch across the harbour mouth to make a pen for him so he couldn't get away. My nets were the ones which were brought. Everyone hastened and hurried down to the harbour, hustling for a good place. They all wanted to see the wild man in the water. He was carried down in a net, and he looked different to the way he had when he'd been caught. He was thinner and paler, somehow as though being away from the sea for so long had leached the colour out of him. Lord Bartholomew gave a speech about the star of the sea being our guide on the way to Christ, lest we capsize amid the storm-tossed waves, and then he commanded that the wild man should be released to swim in the water just for one day. The guards shook him out of the net, dropping him into the harbour like a coin in a well. He stretched and flexed, feeling the seawater on his skin. Then he was sinking into it, rolling over and over in it, wrapping himself in its arms. But then he was swimming, pulling himself through the waves with arms that suddenly looked stronger towards the line of nets, faster and faster. Mine were the best nets in Orford, you know. No fish could escape them, for they were woven to do the job. Or they would have been, if I hadn't cut a hole right there in the middle. And like an eel, the wild man was through, he was out, he was free. The Lord Bartholomew was furious, his arms were raving and his face was red as he knew he'd lost his prize. We all watched the wild man swimming away, sometimes visible, sometimes covered by waves, sometimes holding up a hand, then disappearing below the surface. We watched and we watched as he got further away till he was quite gone. And that might have been the last time I saw him, but it wasn't. It was down on the shore at the end of a long day when the year was dying, watching the sun plunge into the sea to cool its toes after a day running across the sky. I looked out over the water. The sun was in my eyes and there was a rock jutting up ahead of me but it wasn't a rock it was moving and it was swimming towards me scales shining in the last surviving sunlight it was the wild man he looked happy he was free he recognised no cross no rules no men with chains and burning irons he was smiling because he knew they'd never catch him again Right up to me he swam, close enough to touch, and there in his hand was the magic shell he showed Jack and me in the castle. I wondered at him giving it me then, but of course he didn't need it, for the sound of the waves would never rest for him. The wild man swam out, and I watched the waves carry him, past the boundaries, past the reefs, to a place where the pointing finger of judgment would not rest on him. The tide rushed in over my feet, and such a fullness, such a brightness came over me, kept me standing there till night, and familiar voices called me back to town. Days and weeks passed by, with the same rules and the same narrow streets. 
But all of this time later, when I hold my shell and hear the booming surf slamming against the clouds for joy, I still know I'll never drown. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was the night before my wedding and I felt like a background performer in somebody else's big scene. I was rapidly discovering that everybody else had very firm opinions on what a wedding ought to be, and that the wishes of the actual couple were more or less irrelevant. Hazel and I would have probably preferred a quiet elopement, but with her family, that was never going to be an option. Even Hazel's hen party hadn't really been to her taste, although... She was far too polite to say so. If I were being tactful, I would describe Hazel's sister as having a forceful personality. If tact was totally abandoned, I would call Amber a complete nightmare. She'd taken it upon herself to organise things Hazel and I hadn't even realised needed organising and was making herself very unpopular doing it. We had to keep reminding ourselves that we were actually looking forward to our wedding because Amber really sucked all the fun out of it. I think Hazel and I were both secretly looking forward to the honeymoon more. We'd booked a cottage and had been deliberately vague about where exactly it was, despite having lots of digs from Amber about not going on an expensive trip abroad. That evening, we were all together in Hazel's family home, a lovely old farmhouse in Cheshire, and the atmosphere had reached fever pitch. Hazel's mum was making a fuss about making her lasagna for everybody. The lasagna was always perfect, but she worried about it beyond all reasonable level. Amber was alternating between phoning the florist to scream at them every five minutes and frantically tweaking her handmade table centrepieces. Hazel had escaped upstairs, saying she wanted to check her dress and shoes but I suspected that she had barricaded the door to her childhood bedroom and was reading a book. I certainly couldn't blame her for that. And when Amber screeched at the florist for the fourth time, I made desperate eyes at Harry, my soon-to-be brother-in-law, wordlessly begging him to get me out of there. He was a much quieter person than Amber, more like Hazel, really, and he looked pretty grateful to have an excuse as Amber had recently been haranguing him about napkin-folding styles, a subject I was pretty sure he'd never considered in his life. Dogs, Harry said suddenly. They need walking. Wanna come with me, Robin? I leapt up with almost indecent speed, and had never been happier to see the mournful expressions of the two floppy-eared basset hounds. We found our wellies and the dog leads and were soon putting distance between ourselves and the pressure cooker atmosphere of the house. All gets a bit much, doesn't it? Harry said, and I readily agreed. We walked in blessed silence, inhaling the late afternoon air. It was still light just about, although the weather had been dingy grey all week, which made it seem darker earlier. I felt the tension easing from my shoulders as we walked through the beautiful countryside leading down to Rossburn Mere. It was a stunning walk and one I often enjoyed with Hazel when we were visiting her parents. We had to cross a little lane, helping the dogs over the stile, and then we were in the meadow leading down to the mere itself, 
a gorgeously clear lake surrounded by lush wetlands. Harry and I walked quietly around the edge of the mere for a while, until the dogs needed a breather and paused to investigate some ducks. Harry picked up a stone and skimmed it perfectly across the water, where it bounced four times before sinking to the bottom. That's a knack, I said, rather impressed. I've never managed to skip a stone successfully. Lots of practice, Harry said dourly, escaping from Amber when we were growing up. Has she always been like that? I asked. Oh yes, he said. Sure you want to be related to her? I'm sure about Hazel, I said, which was probably all the answer to the question he needed. Then I remarked that it was a lovely spot to change the subject. Yes, it is, I like it, he said. Then he looked at me sideways with that peculiar smile he has. Oh, if you hear bells, we'd better go home sharpish. Bells? I asked, unable to imagine what he meant. Hasn't Hazel told you the story about the bell? No, she's never mentioned it. Oh, probably shouldn't have said anything then, Harry said. Bit inauspicious the night before your wedding, now I come to think of it. Forget I spoke. You can't say that and then not tell me, I said. As if to back me up, one of the Basset Hounds promptly sat on his foot to prevent him from leaving before he told me his mysterious story. Oh well, in that case, Harry said amiably. He picked up a few stones from the water's edge and had a supply in his hand, and every so often he skimmed one into the water. The rhythmic sound was a comforting accompaniment to his voice as he spoke and I found myself almost hypnotised by the splashes. They say that when Rosthorn Church was built in, oh, I don't know, 1600s or something, it was almost finished, and there were only the bells left to put into the tower. It was the day before Easter Sunday, so they were keen to get it done so that the chimes could ring out to celebrate Easter. The builders were lugging the bells up the hill, but one of them kept rolling back down whenever the man pushing it took his hands off it for a moment. Well, he got more and more wound up, and after this had happened a few times, he said to the bell, I would the devil had thee! Sounds ominous, I said. Well, yes, the devil was obviously listening, Harry said seriously, as though he really believed any of this might have happened. Because as soon as he pushed the bell up the hill and was taking a breather, it rolled down towards him faster than it ought and squashed him stone dead. And it kept rolling until it fell in the mere here and sank. Serves him right for cursing, I said, trying to inject some joviality. The afternoon was beginning to feel colder, and Harry's story was not the cheeriest. Oh, that wasn't the end of it, though, he said. The legend says... That the bell fell into the mere and landed on the home of the mermaid who lives at the bottom. Mermaid? Come on now. Really? Harry said. That's the story. It fell on her home and crushed one of her eggs. Just the same as it had crushed the builder. She was so angry, she blamed the people on land for casting the bell and bringing it to Rosthern and being so careless as to drop it in her mere. So, the next morning, at dawn, she dragged the sunken bell with her all the way up to the surface and rang it on Easter morning, singing a tragic song the whole time. The noise was so awful that the service was ruined. Apparently, she's done it every Easter morning since. If you're ever here for Easter and you're minded to get up early, you might spot her. I imagine she would feel my scepticism coming and stay well underwater, I said. You don't believe it, do you? You haven't actually heard anything, have you? I'm not an early riser, he said. And it's only meant to be at dawn on Easter Day this mermaid appears? Or when someone's going to die, said Harry. But surely she'd be appearing all the time in that case, I pointed out. It was a fanciful story, but someone dies every few minutes. Oh, it's not just anyone, he said. I think they need to be vaguely connected to the family at Tatton Hall, the Edgertons. Wouldn't ring for you, even if you were at death's door. 
Your family got an Edgerton connection, I said. I vaguely remembered Hazel's dad mentioning the name linked to Tatton Hall, which was the lovely National Trust property near their home. Or something very far down the line, Harry said. Probably on the wrong side of the bedsheets. But did you mean about it being bad luck the night before our wedding? I persisted. The mermaid story was a little macabre, perhaps, but it didn't feel particularly relevant. Oh, just that the mermaid was last heard of in... Oh, I don't know quite when. Victorian times, I think. She appeared to a young woman called Charlotte Edgerton. You can see a memorial in the church if you like. Although, I expect your mind will be on other things tomorrow. Anyway, Charlotte is supposed to have seen the mermaid on the eve of her wedding. And she was dead within an hour. What? I said, incredulous. Was that the official cause of death? Saw a mermaid and keeled over? Oh, oh no, it was apparently a bronchial infection, but, you know, people like their superstitions. I was a little bit relieved, I have to confess. I'm not superstitious, and I've never believed in ghosts or other monsters. A pre-existing bronchial condition seemed far more plausible than the sighting of a strange woman with a bell. Nevertheless, I was happier when we'd started the walk home from Rosthanmere, despite not really believing in any of it. Omens of death, though, are not something one really wants to consider before the happiest day of one's life. Harry skimmed his last stone and we took the dogs back to the cottage, where mercifully everything had calmed down. I was staying in the spare room that night, as it was supposed to be bad luck to sleep in the same bed as Hazel, I didn't really agree with that and would have rather started our married life as we intended to go through it, together, but her family insisted. I found myself unable to sleep after Harry's odd story. Although I didn't believe it, and I probably ought to be thinking about the things I needed to do in the morning, like making sure my best man had actually come to the right county, I sat up in the chair by the window, looking out over the fields towards the mere. I don't think I actually slept all night, or perhaps I only dozed in the chair, because the sky was getting light with misty wisps of dawn when I opened my eyes. I cracked the window open, hoping the cold air would wake me up a bit in lieu of coffee having been made. Then I heard a strange, hollow booming. Not, not like a church bell, really, but something darker. It sounds ridiculous to say, but... I could almost hear rust in the sound. I looked out of the window towards the mere, and though it was only just getting light, there was a darker shape in the centre of the water. Hazel's dad is a keen bird watcher, one of those people who keeps a pair of RSPB binoculars on every windowsill in case he catches sight of a lesser spotted warbler of some sort. With a feeling rather akin to dread, I took the binoculars out of their case and raised them to my eyes. I could see what was definitely a head and shoulders above the surface of the water and a long, thin arm holding a huge algae-encrusted bell. The arm was emaciated and the skin greenish and indistinct as though it were still underwater. But the eyes of the creature were the worst part huge green and yellow orbs curiously slanted and brimming with an expression so sad it sent a wave of emotion through me as though I too might cry at any moment. Out of its mouth came a strange high wailing sound which I could hardly call a song. The sound of it made me feel nauseous so I put the binoculars down and backed away from the window giving myself a little slap on the cheek to wake myself up I was still half convinced that I was dreaming at that point, you see, so I staggered down the landing to the bathroom and splashed my face with water. When I got back to the spare room, there was no sign of the creature in the mirror. Still feeling as though I might be sick, I lay down on the bed and must have fallen asleep again because the next thing I was conscious of was Hazel leaning over me, all rumpled hair and creased pyjamas. This is all very nice, I said, but... Aren't I meant to not see you? 
Oh, never mind about that, she said. Can you come and help? It's Amber. I don't think she's very well. Well, I expect you can guess that we didn't get married that day after all. Although we did stay in Rosthen for a bit to help with Amber's funeral. In the end, we had a much smaller wedding ceremony which suited us much better, and we see a lot more of Hazel's family. I find myself much more inclined to visit them now that Amber's not there. But if Harry ever asks me to accompany him to walk the dogs down to the mere, I always decline. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.